This is John Anderson Direct with David Belinsky. My guest tonight is Dr. David Belinsky. He's a philosopher, a mathematician and a novelist. He received his PhD in philosophy from Princeton University. He was later a postdoctoral fellow in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia University. He's authored works on systems analysis, differential topology, theoretical biology, analytic philosophy, and the philosophy of mathematics, as well as, in fact, uh, uh, written no less than three very important and very interesting books. He's also taught philosophy, mathematics, and English at Stanford, Rutgers, the City, the University of New York, and the University of Paris. David Belinsky has written books critiquing Darwinism and also the New Atheists. His most recent book is Human Nature. I think you'll enjoy this. I've been looking forward to speaking to David for a very long time. Well, David, it's a, a great honour, uh, having now formally introduced you, uh, to have you with me for this conversation. Can I begin by saying that after reading some of your works and listening to some of your commentary, I hope you'll forgive me if I see you, say that I see you as a sort of an anti-intellectual intellectual. I mean to say that although your intellectual credentials are absolutely beyond dispute as a pure mathematician, you've really made it one of your preoccupations, and I think very valuably so, to hold a mirror up to the intellectual classes of today to expose the, the hubris and the frequent lapses in, in, in logic and, and reasonableness. Can I ask you, is there something about the intellectual class today that, that makes, if I can put it this way, pride a problem and, and therefore self-scrutiny, something that's lacking, but which should be brought back into the scene? It's a good question. Um, it is only with difficulty that I could consider myself not an intellectual, not a writer, but a true friend of the working class. Uh, I think that is something of a stretch. I am what I am. I write for a living. I live with my pen, uh, to translate from the French. And uh, there's simply no way that I can honorably describe myself as an anti-intellectual intellectual, unless I include myself in the anti part of that declaration. And I very, I very strongly feel that everything I say should be self-referential as well. I'm including myself in that class. I have no inclination and certainly no rational reason for withdrawing from that class. Nonetheless, I think you're absolutely right in putting your finger on a, on a real problem, one that I've seen in my life in, in practical terms. That is, there's an enormous class of people in the West, and probably in China and Russia and South America as well, who have a great deal of influence, but virtually no real responsibility. Uh, you know, when I left academic life for the first time in 1969, I was a professor at Stanford. I had a, a golden position. I thought destiny was beckoning me. So I left Stanford. I joined McKinsey as a consultant. Then I became uh, a senior quantitative analyst uh, for the city of New York, the Human Resource Administration. 
And I got to tell you, the shock was overwhelming. Here I was lecturing to undergraduates, giving graduate seminars, thinking I was extraordinarily clever. And not very difficult to do when you have a captive audience. And all of a sudden, I was encountering men of 30, 40 years experience. I was only 24 at the time. Uh, deeply immersed in the business of preparing budgets, running a city, uh, managing an administration. And I realized with a, with a, I think a, a welcome shock that I didn't know anything about this world, not a thing. And the people I was dealing with, they had come into the city administration in the 1930s. And they, they uh, looked at me and my requests and the, and the uh, relatively insignificant demands that I was making as if a fly had entered the conference room, meriting no more than being brushed aside. It was a very good experience. Um, there's a whole world beyond the world of intellectual discourse, beyond the world of policy, uh, thinking beyond the world of declaration and agitated uh, proposals for the wholesale reform or revolution of society in which people are sitting down, they're doing the very difficult, and I have to say not terribly interesting work of making something run effectively. It's very salutary. Um, all my meetings with the Department of Sanitation were scheduled for six in the morning because these guys were just too busy to meet over lunch with me. So at six in the morning, I would come in. The guy was heading the sanitation department. I still remember his name, but I won't disclose it. He, he was about 65. He'd been in that position for 30 years. He came in during the, during the Depression. At six in the morning, he ordered coffee, a Danish, and began smoking an enormous cigar, fumigating the entire room. <laughs> no matter what I asked him to do, and I had the statutory authority to ask him to prepare some budget documents. He said, no, I ain't going to do that. I had no response. I ain't going to do that. You can go to whoever you like, Mr. Blinsky, he said, but I ain't going to do that. I'm too busy cleaning up the city. It was a wonderful experience. I, I got out of there as fast as I could. I knew that was not where I was supposed to be. But I think that kind of experience is lacking. I think intellectuals as a group, writers as a group, do not have a really well-seasoned appreciation of how hard it is to make something work. It's really very hard. It's very hard. It requires skills. I don't happen to have nothing in my life works properly. God forbid I should ever be responsible for preparing a $2 billion budget again. That was the budget, $2 billion. They put it in my hands and say, make it work. No, absolutely not. Make it work? How? Where do I get the figures? How do I add them? So um, I think the, the problem that you put your finger on is one that I think is, to a certain extent, underappreciated, that people in my position, people who blab for a living, have a great deal of influence, shouldn't be underestimated. But they're very, very negligible when it comes to the responsibility for what they say. And the 20th century, unfortunately, is a panorama of influence without responsibility and a sudden thrusting of responsibility, as in so the Soviet Union, with catastrophic results. Catastrophic results. 
Well, those are interesting insights, and we'll come back uh, to the role and the influence of intellectuals and academia in a moment uh, uh, when we talk about universities. But if I could before then, uh, you've said some really interesting things about the Enlightenment, uh, and it's become fashionable again, it seems to me, for people to talk about the Enlightenment. The, you know, People sort of say, that's where our democracy, that's where our freedoms and so forth arose. And that, but that comes after many years of being derided, you know, as arrogant by academics and postmodernists, by called a, a failed project by its critics. Uh, and yet you can't help thinking that the Enlightenment as described by its modern day disciples is in some ways an Enlightenment, if you like, created in their own image, perhaps kindly, egalitarian, reasonable and atheistic. A modern appeals to the Enlightenment as a source of inspiration, in your view, exercises in historical revisionism or myth-making? Well, it, there's a scholarly question. To what extent does someone say, like Stephen Pinker, who's written a book about the Enlightenment, or newspaper columnists or political analysts who constantly remind us that the Enlightenment not only is, but must be a good thing. After all, who can oppose Enlightenment? Everyone wants to be lighter than they are, and they want to be the recipient of light as well as the source of light. And nobody's arguing for the heart of darkness in contemporary affairs. That's not the issue at all. To a large extent, the Enlightenment covers two or three hundred years of uh, very intense intellectual activity, at least from 1600 to 1820, when a counter-Enlightenment began in Germany. And it's very difficult to know when somebody says, I'm all in favor of the Enlightenment, how could you be opposed to it? What precisely he means. Is Newton an Enlightenment figure? He's certainly at the, at the very top of the scientific pantheon. But he also wrote far more about religious affairs than he ever wrote about physics. He was a practicing alchemist. Was Leibniz an Enlightenment figure? What about Berkeley? who denied the existence of the external world. What about the Scottish Enlightenment? What about you? Exactly what part of the Enlightenment are you talking about? When Robespierre walked into Notre Dame and declared it a temple of reason, are you entirely sure you want to follow in those particular footsteps? Since we know perfectly well where those footsteps led, they led to the guillotine. Is that entirely a rational project or a project you would commend as a political agenda for the 21st century? I, I'm very skeptical. I think uh, it, it makes no sense to contrast the Enlightenment to another project contrary to the Enlightenment, the dark project, the light project. There is no other project. One way or another, we are rhetorically bound to the idea of an Enlightenment. But the minute you start looking very seriously at 300 years between, say, 1550, 1600, 1850, 1820 to 1850, then there's an awful lot of subversive currents floating around uh, and a, an awful lot of places where you can say, you know, if I put my finger on this place, Robespierre at Notre Dame, it starts vibrating in a very unpleasant way. If I look through certain documents about the Soviet era, for example, Arthur Kessler, writing Darkness at Noon, all these figures recognize the continuity between their experiences and French experiences from 17, 
1787 to 1793, when the terror ended. And um, they're all sitting there in jail, especially the, the protagonist saying, how did that go wrong? Before I would say the Enlightenment merits our intense enthusiasm and represents something pointing us to the future, I'd like a lot more attention to be paid to those places in the manifold of experience that when we touch them, they begin vibrating very unpleasantly. So am I right in saying that I think in part what you're saying is that the Enlightenment was many things, in, it's a bit like they say of America or China, just about anything you say of it is true at some point in some place in, in that situation. So the Enlightenment probably in America was fully compatible in many ways with a Christian view of the world. And it was an appalling thing in the French Revolution. Most of the the leading, many Enlightenment figures in the early days were pro-slavery. They were anti-women. In fact, slavery, the revolt against slavery, perhaps the greatest human rights movement of all times, the ending of the African slave trade, is often attributed to the Enlightenment, but it was really led by unpopular to say it these days, but a bunch of white, privileged, mainly Christian men. Uh, That's the reality of it. Uh, And then, you know, you could also argue that there were bastard offshoots, if I can put it that way, of the Enlightenment. Would Karl Marx not be such a thing? And the whole Marxist movement? I'm certain that if Karl Marx were with us today, he would say, yeah, I'm an Enlightenment figure too. Everything I write expands the reach of life. giving you the scientific basis for the organization of society. And that's one of the claims that in the 21st century, we attribute to the Enlightenment, a rational as opposed to a mythological or religious understanding of the social structures in which we live. That may, may or may not be historically accurate. The scholarly work on the Enlightenment and the popular interpretation of the Enlightenment is two quite different things. This is a long period of intellectual history with many, many diverse positions. Um, It embraces Newton and Hume and Barclay and the Scottish Enlightenment and the French Enlightenment. It's a whole lot of things moving through the ground of that period of intellectual history. But we're talking about the Enlightenment as a rallying point for contemporary society. And I think you're absolutely right. The slave trade was ended by a very aggressive, agitated group of white men, privileged men, unprivileged men, couldn't have done the work. And it was ended first in Britain and then in the United States at an enormous cost. That cost does not represent what I would call the enlightenment in action. The American Civil War consumed 700,000 dead. That is not entirely what one expects from the Enlightenment, a descent into ferocity of that order in order to bring about a a result that only gradually could people come to see was completely just. Slavery is unjust. There's no question about that. But if the Enlightenment was what it was supposed to be, withdrawing the screen of prejudice, illusion, and myth from human eyes. It's very remarkable it didn't do a good job. It did an even worse job in the 20th century, much worse job. Um, Primo Levi has a wonderful description of an incident that happened at Auschwitz. Um, He was terribly thirsty 
And uh, there was an icicle hanging from a window. And he stuck his hand out just to get a drop of moisture on his tongue. The German guard immediately said, that's forbidden. And Levy said, well, why is it? Why is it forbidden? He spoke German and said, warum? And the German guard said, here gibt es kein warum. In Auschwitz, there is no why. Just you have to do what we tell you. <clears throat> and Vivian Gordek, who's a, a very intelligent commentator, said, uh, in that situation, it was clear that the people organizing this institution had no use for enlightenment values. She brings it up just as a rhetorical device. Um, the question that neither Levy or Hornick was able to articulate is, doesn't that say something about enlightenment values, their fragility in the face of force? And if they are so fragile that they could do nothing to prevent the horrors of the 20th century, why are we so eager to commit ourselves to the enlightenment as a program? We're not usually in the position of someone who says, I'm putting all my money on a failed project. But in a certain sense, the Enlightenment in the 20th century was a failed project. That's a very interesting point, isn't it? Because if you go back to the 1830s, you had a historian of the standing of a Macaulay sort of writing that human progress now is inevitable because we're curious, because we've, we've established what reason is, we'll continue to pursue it and everything will be all right. So I suppose you'd say, he was an optimistic humanist. But what you're really saying, if I understand you, and I, it's certainly my perspective, World War I and what followed it um, in the years after the Second World War, the, uh, uh, the Holocaust, uh, the 250 or so million people who died as a result of violence and brutality in the 20th century. I mean, there's no other way of putting it other than to say that you need something much more robust than naive hopes, perhaps until you come to grips properly with the flawed side of our nature. You can't do anything to draw out effectively the best side. And maybe in a way, the greatest failing of the Enlightenment was that it, if, if I can put it this way, it didn't do sin very well. It didn't do human fragility very well. Excuse me for interrupting. No, that, that was... Just looking at your I, response. I, I agree completely. Um, you know, Macaulay wrote in 1832 a very famous paragraph where he talks about an uninterrupted panorama of progress for the next hundred years. He was replying to uh, Robert Southey, who was uh, very melancholy about the destruction of the English countryside. And uh, very few people reading those kind of declarations from the 1830s and the 1840s and 1850s, the Whig perspective on history, are very much minded to compare it with reality. It's, it's a very unpleasant comparison. And I think when, when, when you remark that the Enlightenment figures and the Whig historians especially failed to accommodate sin and the nature of evil, I think that's absolutely right. We're, we're all made very uncomfortable about speaking about these topics because they seem somehow medieval or even pre-medieval. They seem to remind us of something we prefer to forget. Um, but Dr. Johnson had a wonderful remark. Boswell asked him, Dr. Johnson, for his perspective and defense of the doctrine of original sin. And he said, Dr. Johnson said, a defense is not needed for men of so avowedly 
confessedly corrupt, that all the laws of heaven and earth are unable to prevent them from the commission of their crimes. I think the 20th century, as it's reflected in history or literature or popular, uh, popular enthusiasms, would benefit by remembering Dr. Johnson's words. It's terribly important that something did go wrong. It began with the First World War, 1914, August 1914. Something did not change, but changed drastically in the diapason of human experience. All of a sudden, the ground opened up and we discovered a willingness to shed blood that would have appalled the 19th and the 18th centuries. Why did that happen? What role did the Enlightenment play? <clears throat> was the, uh, should responsibility be placed on figures who were organizing human, um, European political affairs from, say, 1906 to 1940? Were they too intoxicated by Macaulay's Whig panorama of an ineluctable progress? To a certain extent, the answer is, yeah, they were. They could not imagine what they were, the consequences of what they were doing. Everybody knew. Everybody knew that the war would not be a great deal, but they had survived the first and second Balkan wars. They all thought it could, it could be managed. Not one statesman, several generals in the British army, yes, but not one statesman ever imagined the death toll somewhere between 15 and 20 million. I say somewhere because to this day, 100 years after the Great War, we still have not accurately counted the dead. We know it's more than 10 million because we have army statistics, but the Italian, Central European, Russian death statistics are still, they're, they're very much like So yeah, I, I agree completely with that. There was a failure above all of imagination. And that failure was repeated again in the 30s confronting Nazi Germany because no one could bring themselves to imagine that what Hitler said he was going to do, he proposed to do. You go through the documents, the diplomatic record of, say, 1935, 1936 to 1939, when it came all these people were kidding themselves. They were just kidding themselves about what reality was really like. Yeah, there are people in the morally improved, enlightened, enlightened 20th century who want to conquer the world and kill a whole lot of people. What an astonishing thing to be forced to discover. Dr. Johnson wouldn't have been surprised. And a great many other figures in history would not have been surprised, but we were surprised. And it says something about our gullibility, but our, it says something about our lack of historical awareness, too. You know, the Enlightenment oh, right. closely connected to pollution, the French Revolution, in addition to, to uh, many accomplishments. The French Revolution was not a negligible affair, and the Declaration of the Rights of Man is not a negligible document. But it was also involved in the first modern genocide in the Vendée. That has to be remembered. And it's very often forgotten. Not so much anymore by French historians. So um, you, you, you're actually coming to us in this conversation from Paris. Now, that is, uh, France was, of course, the home of Blaise Pascal. And he talked of the glory and the scum, you know, human beings being a, a rich and terrifying mixture of, the, of nobility. Uh, and of depravity. Uh, and I think in part what I'm saying, and I think what I hear you promoting much more eloquently than me, is that if you want to get the good results that, that we passionately think 
would be ideal for the flourishing of human beings, you've got to be realistic about what history teaches us. And this whole question of human nature, because you talk gullibility, what we're now seeing, it seems, is uh, despite all the evidence of the 20th century and despite the challenges facing us now, there's a new spirit abroad that's wildly optimistic about human nature again. And I think in your book, you actually tell us that we need to be a little bit more careful that public intellectuals like Steven Pinker rightly point to the achievements. Uh, I mean, I'm always fascinated by the business of feeding people. I'm a farmer. I've been involved in farm policy all my life. We've done an astonishing job over the last 50 years of feeding people globally, lifting them out of poverty, extending their lifespans, giving their children opportunities, much better than people might think. However, on the other hand, the whole global liberal order is now at threat. We need to be very realistic and learn the lessons of history. That's a, a long way of, um, of asking you this. Are we in danger of naively encouraging a revival of optimistic but unrealistic uh, humanistic utopianism? Well, <clears throat> I, I myself do not know a great many utopians. I know a great many uh, people, and I've read a great many people, who think some sort of uh, abrupt change in the political, economic, and social order is not only appropriate, appropriate, but absolutely necessary. And uh, that seems to me a corrupt river, navigating in any number of smaller rivers, gender identity, social equity, affirmative action, a revision of a historical understanding of the relationship between men and women, parity and employment. I mean, every part of the political dy dynamic has been put into play all over again. There is absolutely nothing that seems to be settled, no outrage that seems to be unjustifiable. And this, rather than a utopian scheme, there are very few ardent communists left. We have a few here in France. But they really don't mean it. They don't want a Soviet-style system. They just want to be thought um, appropriately interested in the welfare of the poor. That's about as far as their communism goes. But the desire to um, scramble the social and historical order, that's very deep. <clears throat> and it's running right over the United States. It's running over Western Europe. Not as fast, but it's running over Western Europe. It's certainly present in, in Great Britain. And I assume it's present in Australia, too. Um, can we come to this, 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 this concept of reason? The Enlightenment was about reason. If we apply reason, we'll find our way forward. Now, plainly, you can see its place, and I assume it's largely undiluted in the higher sciences, in particular, pure maths, physics, whatever. Further down the scientific food train, if I can put it to that, you get more and more subjectivism coming into the debate. But reason, what is it? Has it changed its meaning uh, and in the Enlightenment, many thinkers thought reason displaces God uh, and, um, if you like, can't be applied so much uh, maybe in the moral area. How do you see reason in the end and can it be applied to the non-quantifiable, if you like, the non-scientific uh, areas of our lives and consideration? It's another one of those gorgeous words. It's like enlightenment. Nobody can be in favor of the darkness when he has the choice of the light. So it's rhetorically very effective. It's a persuasive word. Reason is another persuasive word. 
Uh, and you have to go uh, a long time back in history before anyone says, I believe because it's absurd. You have to go very far back. Nobody really wants to be in this position or that position. So everyone in some sense is in favor of reason as a very good thing. Me too. I think reason's just fine. Uh, when you actually ask, what does it come to? Well, I think there is a, a beautifully organized structure of thought from the 19th and 20th century, which expresses reason in terms of uh, computations and calculations. And that's, that's logic. And I think one of the glories of the 20th century is the creation of a very sophisticated system of logic for expressing the computations that go for moving from a premise to a conclusion. Those are the inferences of logic. So to the extent that reason is an instrumental object, it has made possible the development of a system which, for the very first time, human beings have been able to take a faculty of mind. We can go from a premise to a conclusion. We're born with that capacity. Project it outward into a system and even embed it into a computer. That's one of the great accomplishments of the 20th century. We have objectified a faculty of the mind. We have described very precisely and really in mathematical terms what it is to reason in the context of inferences within a formal system. That's a great achievement. What it is to reason, as you uh, appropriately said, when we descend down the food chain to the McDonald's as opposed to the four-star restaurants of mathematical theoretical physics, that's a different question. I mean, we can reason, we can conduct inferences, we can look at evidence, we can look at data. To a certain extent, when we're discussing gender identity, nothing is stopping, stopping us from doing that, doing that. But I think you're absolutely right. We do reach a point, a crossover point, where our faith in certain instruments, data, evidence, inference, crosses an anterior commitment to certain principles that some deep-seated sense is telling us, don't mess around with this. For example, the family. Everyone has a sense that the family, call it the bourgeois family, is under attack, and it is. Family association is declining. Family stability has been under pressure since the 1960s and probably even earlier. We, we all understand that. And there are all sorts of arguments being made we have to have a new basis for rearing children. We have to have new structures, new, new forms of solidarity. I mean, the, the articles in The Guardian, The Inquirer, they're just endless about this topic. And I read some of them, of course I do. I like to stick to the Daily Mail. It's more a newspaper of my taste. But the, where I go for my information is neither here nor you, you understand, listeners will understand as well as I do, the family is an institution under attack. It's dissolving before our eyes. Um, Marriage is another institution under attack. And the immemorial notion of gender binary, that life presents us with men and women, and there is no crossover possible, no more cross, crossover possible between men and women, then it would be possible for a man to become a reptile. Those species barriers are irrefrangible, and so are the sexual barriers. That part of our historical understanding 
seems to have a more pressing claim on our attention than anything we can cook up looking at statistics or writing uh, a newspaper article or um, making claims or posturing in the political arena. And I think we have reached that crossover point where we say some things are important even though we cannot express their importance adequately. Some part of human nature is necessary, even though we cannot defend the idea of necessity with completely satisfactory results. Some institutions are inherently important, even though we can't defend their inherited importance. I think we have reached that crossover point, certainly. The degree of outrage is proportional to uh, the approach we're making to the crossover point. Can I ask you, um for years, we've uh, been living in a postmodern society where, where, in essence, rather than talk about faith in science and reason and data and logical argument, uh, and, and rather than think that there are truths to be established, uh, truth is in the eye of the beholder. I call it radical uh, relativism, if you like. Um, and yet, you've just touched on an area where, in the biological sciences, uh, you know, there seems great confusion over the issue of gender, great confusion. That's an area where uh, it would seem to me that there's a break between what most people feel is workable and where the some of the elites are going on it. And we don't seem to want to listen to the science. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think the science here is reasonably clear. In other areas, particularly in this country, uh, on climate change and on COVID, the media endlessly tell us we must follow the science. Where do you think public faith in science has gone? Because we seem almost schizophrenic about it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Where Where is public faith in, in science gone? Uh, in drought, to use a Yiddish expression, it's gone into the ground. Uh, and part <laughs> of this, part of this is is uh, a communication problem. I mean, the scientists are not very good at appearing humble and non-arrogant in public, uh, and certainly the general public who uh, recoils from science and scientific thinking, especially if it involves mathematics, <clears throat> has noticed this. Um, it's part of a general sense, perhaps engendered by the internet, I really don't know, that there is something corrupt in any elite formation, no matter whether it's scientific, religious, practical, political, there's a wholesale rejection of elite formations, domination, hierarchies in favor of what would appear to be a kind of a rustic form of anarchy. Every man for himself, every truth for himself or itself. Um, this is, of course, insane. It's just a disastrous recipe for the 21st century, which is, if it's going to survive at all, it's going to be technologically sophisticated. We have no alternatives. Um, when I when I look at the United States and I see, see people announcing plans for survival mode and trekking off to the woods in order with, with a, a dozen heavy machine guns on their back, or uh, otherwise preparing to live in splendid isolation as civilization collapses, I think these people are just nuts. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Either civilization flourishes, or it's not going to survive. And if you're sitting out there in the Rocky Mountains hoping that your cabin is going to shelter you, you're deluded. But I think it's, uh, and it's a very interesting question. I, I don't want 
even for a minute to suggest I've got a well-worked answer, but I think anarchy and anarchism have become the uh, default position for a great many febrile intellects. Uh, it's the first thing that comes to mind in any protest. Let's get rid of all authorities. Now, you see it in Seattle, for example. Uh, as a result of, uh, of Black Lives Matter, a group of protesters took over six square blocks of the city, made a complete mess of it, uh, refused all outside authority, and finally had to be removed by force. It was entirely predictable to anyone who follows anarchist movements. They dissolve. They're a catastrophe. You can't run a society on an anarchist principle. The great trouble with anarchism is anarchy, obviously. Um, and yet, increasingly, I think, relatively sophisticated people who have never had the responsibility of administering anything are looking at a form of anarchy, eliminate all forms of authority as a, a remedy for the 21st century. I think it's a disastrously misguided policy. When it comes to science in particular, uh, I don't think, for example, that uh, global, global warming science has covered itself in glory, um, even if it's true that uh, <clears throat> with the exception of one-tenth of one global science, um, um, climate researcher, there is a consensus. Um, that's really not the issue. It's not whether everybody working on climate science agrees, it's whether the agreement is merited. And the decision by the scientific establishment to say, absolutely it's merited, terrible things are coming, don't even for a minute begin to doubt it, I think that was a catastrophic mistake. <clears throat> hiding emails, trying to suppress the publication of dissenting views. This all goes on uh, to, to the present day. It's very difficult to make a critical case contrary to the official case that uh, bombing will become an acute problem within the next 10 years, the next five years. It's just too hot right now here in this room. Um, that's not a good thing. Uh, the kind of deliberation one would have hoped to see, measured, calm, reflective, involving not only uh, climate scientists, but economists, political theorists, and the general public, that really hasn't taken place. Right now, the consensus has won. Everybody on the planet is more or less convinced that within the next 10 years, the oceans are gonna stop boiling. It's not gonna happen, I assure you. But my voice doesn't count. Most people, I mean, there are even some people who say, I refuse to have children in this rotten world because we're bringing the planet to a point of crisis. I've heard some people say this, you're absolutely nuts. We're not bringing the planet to a point of crisis. They're problems, they're technical problems, and they'll be solved technically. We're not going to give up industrial civilization on a whim. <clears throat> I think that's one area where the scientific community could have done a whole lot better. It could have been far far less arrogant about what it was doing, far more realistic. I mean, the point of realism is to say, look, nobody is going to allow modern civilization to collapse. No one, if it means heating up the planet, we do that before we go back to the Stone Age. Um, I think in the case of COVID, it's quite different. The real fact about COVID is that the world was immunologically naive in 2019. 
And no one knew a thing about this pandemic. People learned very rapidly, structure-wise, what a corona, corona, uh, coronavirus was, what the spike protein was. <clears throat> but there was a learning curve. And I think a lot of the confusion, for example, about masks, nobody knew whether you should put on a mask, not here in France, not anywhere. A lot of the confusion was honest. It was epistemological confusion. People really trying to, uh, to come to grips with a pandemic. After all, the world has not suffered a pandemic like this in almost a century. Almost a century. All the reflexes, the facilities, the structure, the administration necessary to deal with it had been allowed to lapse. Nobody ever figured that, what is it, five million people would die in the 21st century because of the respiratory virus? That wasn't on anyone's horizon. If it was on somebody's horizon, he was widely derided, dismissed, or shuffled off into some minor post. <clears throat> so I have a lot more understanding of the scientific community's reaction to COVID. And I think it was humanly, humanly understandable. On the other hand, the ability of the large pharmaceutical houses, constant targets of appropriate, to come up in record-breaking time with an understanding of the structure of the virus and a reasonably effective vaccine, not perfect, now, it doesn't. It does not confer immaculate immunity, but it's brought some parts of the pandemic under control. I think that's been a miraculous achievement, very, very much underappreciated. The amount of work, ingenuity, discipline, and the enormous body of biochemical, molecular, bio, biological knowledge that was necessary to accomplish this task. Chapeau, that's all I can say. Needless to say, I've, I've had myself immunized 11 times just to be on the safe side. <laughs> well done. I hope you are safe. Um, yeah, given, your <laughs> given your great interest in human nature, uh, what, what observations would you make about the way people in the West in particular reacted to COVID? Because it, it actually varied quite a bit. I was very surprised in my own country at the willingness of the Australian people to obey their governments. Uh, and, and, and yet in America, you see a very different response. Uh, it's hard to know just what we can make of human nature. And it, it raises that whole question, doesn't it, of nature versus nurture. Um, I, I, I really can't talk about the United States. Look, I, I've been out of the United States for 22 years now. I go back for two-day visits. Um, of course, I, uh, it doesn't stop me from posturing. It doesn't stop me from uh, for a second from saying I understand the United States deeply, but the fact of the matter is I've lost that fingertip sensitivity to the nuances of American life. But in France, I have the same experience to report that you did. The French were very willing to obey the government, especially when the majority of the French were convinced they were going to die. Oh, they obeyed in a second. I mean, people went back to their houses, they shut their doors, closed the windows, turned off their ventilators, um, kept, the, kept the dogs under the couch. They were willing to do whatever the government said to do. Uh, but what no one seemed to recognize, we see it in retrospect, is the government didn't know what to do either. I mean, they were yeah. faced with any number of unenviable prospects, a real quarantine, a real quarantine, which would have ended the pandemic, say, in six to eight weeks at the price of destroying the French economy, a partial quarantine, which is what they did. 
lowering or flattening the curve, hoping for a miracle, advising people to wear masks. Look, I talked to a lot of these people and they're very intelligent and they really did have the welfare of the French at heart. They were not cynical in the least. And they said to me, yeah, if only we knew more. This was two years ago. Now they know quite a bit. Now they know quite a bit. <clears throat> and because the government uh, knows quite a bit more, the French are now doing the same thing as the, as the Americans. They're protesting against the vaccine mandate. That is, to enter a restaurant, you have to show proof of inoculation or prior infection. I think the vaccine mandate was a stroke of genius on the part of the French government because it persuaded so many dilatory people to go get vaccinated. Absolutely no assurance is possible that vaccinating everyone will bring the pandemic to an end. But you know, it, it isn't hurting. It isn't hurting. Rates are coming down and the uh, connection between hospitalization and death rates and infection, they're all those connections are all decoupled. A lot of people are getting sick without going to the hospital. A lot of people are going to the hospital without dying. At the beginning of, uh, of the pandemic, people were dying left and right. They really were. I mean, I was right here in Paris. News was all over the place. It wasn't a joke. And we tend to forget that. Um, there's been a lot of progress. <clears throat> I think when the history of the years from 2019 to 2023 were written, I think the medical establishment will be rightly rewarded for having worked very diligently. I think Big Pharma will be appreciated as a priceless institution, which should be cultivated. Yeah, of course they're making money. Please don't pester me with those socialist concerns of yours. They're making money because they're providing a product that saves human lives. They should make money. And uh, the one issue unaddressed is, where did this virus come from? Yeah, that is an issue that remains to be determined. But uh, I think the evidence is steadily accumulating. It didn't come from the bat in the south of China. It came from Wuhan. And it didn't come from the seafood market. It came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, I can't say that's a slam dunk, but I certainly think that all the arrows are pointed in that direction. And uh, if that's so, it demands not an epidemiological response, but a political response. And I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to offer political advice to nobody. I understand the point. Uh, but you can ask us to think clearly and logically, which is what, of course, you're always seeking to do. And to come to that, you do so fearlessly, if I may say so. You've spent quite a bit of time critiquing and writing about one of your books, Darwin, Darwinian Evolution. Uh, now, overwhelmingly, people will say evolution is an established fact. It's wholly writ. I suspect almost no one would dare to question uh, it uh, almost no one. There are people who do. Uh, and a great number of them, of course, would say, well, of course, it just satisfies this question of God. He's not needed. Uh, in fact, you argue that far from being beyond doubt, uh, that um, there's not a lot of intellectual credibility in Darwinism. Can you tell us, because it's worth recapping, what is Darwinian evolution and why you believe we really need to be a little more open-eyed about the claims that rest upon that theory. You've got an organism, and we know that DNA, the genetic code, 
is really like a book of instructions, modern point of view. All right, that's okay. And uh, we know that accidents happen. Sometimes cats become bits. C-A-T-S becomes B-I-T-S, that sort of thing. Letters change, things are swapped around. That is random mutation. It's random because it's completely uncoupled from what happens to the organism or any causal structure beyond the organism. It just happens like a roulette wheel. The changes that those random mutations provoke result in changes to the organism. Some may be good, some may be bad. The elephant, who began life as a species with a very short trunk, gradually enlarges the size of its trunk because having a long snout proved extremely valuable out there, the African belt. That's the kind of anecdotal story that's told. <clears throat> Over a long period of time, these beneficial changes completely uh, change the constitutive structure of an organism so that a land-dwelling creature, moose, a cow, something like a wolf, becomes a whale. Just a small, inevitable, inexorable uh, series of continuous changes, progressive changes. And that was Darwin's answer to the question, the origin of the species, question mark. As far as uh, I am concerned, it's, it's a perfectly fine myth or fable. It's got a certain amount of truth to it. Mutations are random. But it is at an enormous distance from the scientific theory. Look, we have magnificent examples of what a scientific theory looks like. We've got general relativity. We've got quantum mechanics. We've got the standard model of particle physics. These are rich, deep, detailed accounts of the physical world. You're going to tell me that all of your questions about life are assignable to copying errors in the DNA and lucky breaks out there on the African plains. That's not enough. We need some first principles. We need some rich, a rich body, a, a rich predictive apparatus. You want to know what Darwinian theory really is like? I think um, there's, a, there's a, a fable you can use to illustrate it. Instead of asking about the origin of species, or this species, uh, ask about the origins of the, the novel, the European novel. Where did war and peace come, come from? Well, I can tell you, all European novels were derived ultimately from Don Quixote. They're all descendants of, that was the last common ancestor. Don Quixote was published in Spanish, but this was before the printing press, of course, before uh, the internet. And uh, monks were charged with the responsibility of copying it from one generation to the next. And in copying, inevitably, they made a few mistakes, changed D to a B, changed the Q to a Z, changed the punctuation. And over a very long period of time, 400 years, all those copying errors changed Don Quixote to war and peace. Are you satisfied with that explanation? Would you spend a lot of time listening to my account of how Don Quixote became war and peace? Would you give me a whole pile of money to further my research in the transmigration of literary form? 
I suspect, I can't say with any assurance, but I suspect your answer is, you know, that doesn't sound right. That, that doesn't, doesn't have the ring of truth. I think uh, the fact that we can talk about Darwinian theory on this level of naivete, uh, something we could never do with the standard model of particle physics, never, 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 uh, indicates that what we're dealing with is perhaps a theory with some important insights, although I doubt it. Uh, we're dealing with a very immature thought structure. Uh, the 19th century has magnificent, made th magnificent theoretical advances, but I think the figure is not Darwin, but Maxwell, who developed the theory of electromagnetism, gave it a mathematical form at roughly the same time. In addition, it seems to me that <clears throat> Darwinian, Darwinian theory, as Darwin himself expressed it, is crippled by a typical 19th century assumption of continuity. That is, everything is a process of gradual change. Like everyone else, he was deeply impressed with the success of Newtonian mechanics and Newtonian mechanics is continuous theory. Uh, continuous theory, it appeals to the continuum, the endless number of small, small interventions that life makes in order to create the magnificent thing that's an elephant. What is uh, seldom recognized is that on a fundamental level, Darwinian theory really is a theory of the lucky brain. It's all random. Um, biologists will say, well, the mutations are random, but natural selection, which culls the results of mutations and keeps the good, gets rid of the bad, that's deterministic. It's not so. Uh, natural selection works in a particular environment, and environments, as far as we know, change randomly. So the elephant in developing a 10-foot trunk may have had a great success in Africa, but had the elephant been forced to rent a two-story walk-up in Brooklyn, that 10-foot trunk may not have been such a good thing. We had no general theory of how environments change or how to pair changes in the environments to changes in the, in the organism. So it's entirely random. And the answer uh, to the origin of the species is, in the end, let's be honest, lucky breaks. That's the way things turned out when the great roulette wheel of life turned. I think you and I, especially you and I, uh, we have a deep hunger for a deeper theory. What that theory is, I don't know. I don't think anything. Well, this, I'm really uh, fascinated by what you've said. Let's explore two aspects of it that seem important to me. Um, I have a love of history and spent quite a bit of time trying to understand modern European uh, history when I was at university. And it seems to me that it's very important to understand that the theory of evolution published in 1859 actually had very profound societal and political outcomes, much more so than people realise. Um, you mentioned anarchists. There were people who said, well, uh, that's the natural order of things, um, evolution of the species. Um, let's all go and live in anarchy. And I suppose the fittest will survive. Uh, you had a whole series of other other ideas, uh, you know, Wallace and so forth coming up with them. But of course, the most horrendous of them was the idea of the fittest, of the, or the survival of the fittest, as the Nazis picked the idea up. The master race. So horrendous was a figure in the end, Hitler, that as, as I understand history, he thought the Germans would be the master race until it proved that they couldn't overcome the Russians. So he decided, well, I'm not going to let them withdraw. They can just die there in utter misery on the Eastern Front because plainly they're not the master race. The Russians must be. 
I mean, it's it's an absolutely horrifying moment. <clears throat> On the eve of his death in April of 1945, Hitler uh, did say exactly that. He said. The stronger peoples of the East, he could have said species for all, all that we know, the stronger peoples, the peoples of the East proved stronger. He did, to the moment of his death, view the, the uh, unbelievable horror of the Russian campaign in terms of competition between races, which was his um, way of interpreting Darwin's competition between species. I mean, that went right through Hitler's career. But much more than that, it went right through Nazi doctrine. From 1921, Nazi party was first formed in some Munich year to 1945. This is how the intellectuals, the writers, the politicians, the administrators, and the soldiers thought about it. If you read, uh, read the diaries of soldiers in the Eastern Front as they were advancing into Russia, their justification was always a higher justification. They weren't just soldiers fighting a war. Napoleon could have done that. They were fighting for Germany's racial destiny. It was only when the tide turned they began to wonder, maybe this business of a Darwinian interpretation of geopolitics is not such a great thing since we're facing 10 to 1 odds against the Russians. Maybe we should have thought of that a little more seriously. There's some wonderful documents, extremely poignant. <clears throat> you know, when the Russians finally got into East Prussia, they devastated the place. Yeah. Little known that uh, 12 to 15 million people were expelled from Germans, German speakers, were expelled from Central Europe and East Prussia. An incredibly difficult, painful ordeal. And uh, a doctor is writing in his, uh, his diary about the moral catastrophe. Why has God abandoned us? Starts raising all sorts of concerns about the punishment being inflicted. Uh, could it be, he asks, simply a matter of revenge on the part of the Russian? What's interesting is that these questions he never put in his diary when the Germans were advancing into Russia. It was only when they were being chased out of Russia he began to see a much grander, larger moral calculus. I think that's true of Germany as a state, too. I think Germany has come to, I won't say accept, but it has begun to understand what took place between 1933 and 1945, especially between 1941 and 1945. Um, but my goodness, it took a lot of suffering and death to make that epistemological point. Don't put your faith in a weak or trivial theory. Don't commit your army to racial supremacy. It's a big mistake. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, the other, I think, potential re you know, or reason why it's really important to urge people to think carefully through this one is that, of course, Darwinism is so glibly and so frequently used as justification for saying we needn't worry about God. Um, you know, uh, this disproves God. Science disproves God. That's the line that we see in simple version and in sophisticated version. I think it's probably worth noting that Darwin himself said that the theory did not explain existence. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that. 
Perhaps uh, just on that, I'd be interested in your views. The American philosopher William Lane Craig said a while ago that there's really only two games in town. There's Darwinian evolution or some form of intelligent design. Do you think intelligent design plays a role? Perhaps it becomes more credible to the extent that Darwinism is unable to explain uh, or respond to its own explanatory shortcomings? Well, I don't know. William, William Craig is a very good philosopher. I mean, he's trained as an analytic philosopher. He's also a theologian. And everybody who's encountered him in debate began the debate absolutely certain they would crush him like an insect. Christopher Hitchens is an example, is an, ex an example, only to be crushed and turned by William Craig. So I say that because he's a figure I do admire. <clears throat> Having said that, uh, it seems to me entirely possible that Darwinian theory could be wrong, incorrect, fruitless, false, and the same could be said of intelligent design as scientific theories. Whether intelligent design reaches a level of intuition denied Darwinian theory, that I think is a separate question. Certainly it's logically possible they're both logically possible. But I think intelligent design or design would be the default position of every working biologist, awed and uh, impressed by the complexity of living systems and how much we do not understand living systems, were it not for the fact that contemporary society demands that every knee must bend toward all. That's one of those things that uh, really seems to be a matter of chance. You know, it's not the only one. For example, it was just a matter of chance that um, the most aggressive forms of anarchy started in 1964, 1965. I looked at just the moment that the Johnson administration was faced with a hopeless problem in Vietnam. I don't think there's a deeper explanation for American history. The intersection of two causal streams that nobody could have predicted. But in the case of intelligent design, in the case of Darwinism, I think the idea that there is something miraculous about life is correct, that there is something we poorly understand about living systems is correct, that we do not have an, a vocabulary adequate to our felt need to describe life is correct. We turn to novelists for that. And that we are at the beginning of some form of scientific understanding of living systems, but certainly nothing gives us confidence in saying we've reached that scientific understanding. <clears throat> the argument that uh, science has disproved the existence of God is, it's both meretricious and tawdry, nothing of the sort is true. The, the classical arguments for God exist, God's existence are, are exactly what they've always been, they're tempting, they're terribly tempting, but they're incomplete and inconclusive. We remain where we've always been with respect to issues of the existence of the deity. Uncertain, tormented by longings we cannot completely express, baffled by the mystery of it all. Yeah, well, I think that's very helpful because what you're saying in essence is don't close off the option of thinking through the possibility uh, that there is a loving divine being out there simply be, uh, with some sort of glib assertion or the science has disproved God. It's a, it's, a, it's a journey of exploration that we still need as individuals to take seriously in our pursuit of meaning and purpose, I think is what I'm, I'm suggesting.
That is entirely true. I mean, like any group that has achieved remarkable intellectual success, and of course the sciences have achieved remarkable intellectual success, and that has also clambered to a position, physicists and mathematicians say, on the, on the greasy pole which allows them to look down on other disciplines and then further down on human beings in general. It is entirely natural to expect them to make declarations that the rest, the rest of us consider unbearably arrogant. As when Professor X, senior scientist X, says, well, I've, I spent my life doing quantum entanglement, and I can tell you the science proves God does not exist. Nothing like that is true. Nothing like that is true. Finally, um, you've had a very long and extraordinarily distinguished academic career. You'll protest because by nature you are charmingly modest and, and with a tremendous sense I'll of humour. But you have. You... <laughs> and you've seen a great deal. Uh, you know, the universities are under a lot of pressure now. Uh, and the common view is that they educate 30 or 40% of our people. They educate our teachers who then go out into the schools, uh, but they seem to be hotbeds of, 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 um, of, of opposition to free speech. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any understanding of the fundamental freedoms that the citizens own in a democracy. You're seeing the rise of critical theory. We mentioned Steven Pinker. Now, he said it is so intellectually flimsy. I don't think I'm misquoting him. It's impossible to believe this has taken hold, but it's everywhere. Critical theory in this country now has infused itself into the media, into uh, the classroom, uh, into politics, uh, and it specifically rejects uh, uh, the Enlightenment, all political theories, religion, the very Marxism that spawned it, science, reason, modernism. And yet it's taken hold. And critical race theory, uh, critical gender theory, the stuff is everywhere. And then you've got the overwhelming political bias of academics. I've, you know, as you look back over your lifetime, how do you feel about that? What's gone wrong? And can, can we have any belief, really, that universities can be reformed so they can help us find our way through our difficulties? I wish I had a really good answer, a penetrating answer. Look, um, I, I got to uh, California in 1963, visited Berkeley, and I was stupefied by Berkeley. I mean, I'm talking about the University of California and Berkeley. Yeah. Before any incidents, before anything else, <clears throat> it was a magnificent campus. It had a world-class faculty. It was completely committed to certain classical ideals of university life. It had a rigorous criterion for entry, you had to pass certain kinds of tests. It was magnificently democratic, it was virtually free to residents of California. Classes were well attended, people were well dressed, I still remember how nicely dressed the students were. Um, a year later I began teaching at Stanford, I had the same impression, these were just great triumphs of American democracy. I can't speak about that. Great Britain or Europe at the same time, I wasn't there. <clears throat> Within two or three years, it was all gone. That's when the internal dissolution of the American university started. And I think uh, the causative agent was the collapse of authority on the part of people running the institutions. That's a complicated question. Why would the WASP establish, and that was overwhelmingly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, overwhelmingly World War II veterans, 
men of great experience, great personal quality, why did they just collapse? I saw it with my own eyes. I don't have a good answer to that question. I wish I did. Uh, part of it was sexual. They were stupefied by the exuberant sexuality of the baby cohort. Part of it was the Vietnam War, which they knew they could not master, given the constraints they were operating under. Uh, part of it was just the inevitable process of aging. They were just a little too old to manage the crisis. And part of it was the increasing demands of women for a share of the pie in the university system. It is from the 1960s that one dates the rise of student debt. <clears throat> one date dates the collapse of democratic participation in the university, one dates the collapse of the hierarchy of academic values, <clears throat> and above all, one dates the uh, beginning of an enormously expanding bureaucracy devoted to racial, sexual, and identity politics, which has been the true corrupting force. Uh, if a woman is running or a man is running a, an office of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you can bet, especially if she's bringing down $300,000 in salary, that she's not going to examine the premises of her office very carefully. And once these institutions are established and so corrupted by this administrative whale, it becomes very difficult to reform them, extremely difficult. But at the same time, it's not possible to recreate an 800-year-old institution like the modern university. What are we going to do? We can't recreate an Oxford or a Cambridge or a Harvard. We know perfectly well if we can start a university, but it will be victim to exactly the same, the same problems, donor capture, for example. So it's a very difficult situation. And all I can say is that I'm prepared to give my advice, but not prepared to justify it. Yeah, you've said, you've said some very interesting things about young people and what's happening on our campuses. One of my observations in Australia is that there's a significant cohort of younger people who get that it's all going off the rails. A very fine young Australian male a man said to me recently, he's at one of our pre most prestigious universities. It's one of the few that rates really highly globally. He said, most of my lecturers and tutors are so ideologically driven that's astounding that they actually think their students believe them because they don't. And I've noticed with Jordan Peterson that um, there's a real thirst amongst many younger people for what I would call steak instead of the thin gruel of an empathy culture. So that gives me great hope, if I can say that. And I'd be just very interested in your response. I, th I think I think we we agree completely. I, I've watched Jordan Peterson <clears throat> any number of times. I think some of his lectures are absolutely superb, especially on the Bible. Always something I can learn from them. Um, but there's something heartwarming about his ascendancy, isn't there? I mean, he's gone from a relatively unknown psychology professor to a worldwide figure. Uh, he is serious. He's earnest. He's profoundly attractive on the stage. Um, he is to a certain extent modest and self-effacing, but to a certain extent very assertive and very sure of himself when it comes to contumelious protests in the part of students, ignorant students. And he is offering his audience, which I, I'm, I'm not sure of the statistics, but I would suspect his audience is probably largely 
between 18 and 35. That audience, at any rate. I can't document that. He's obviously offering something that they deeply want, did not know they needed, and are grateful for having. That is a figure of authority with a command of a certain portion of the historical, psych psychological, and scientific literature, who is perfectly prepared to say that one thing is false, another thing is true, and we are not deep down in any doubt about it. And I think people, people admire that immensely. You know, there's a wonderful essay by Dostoevsky, which I treasure. It's, the title is, Why is Everyone Here Lying? And um, I think Jordan Peterson has come onto, it's really the world stage now. I mean, he lectures everywhere, as far as I can tell. Uh, he's come on to, onto the world stage, and one of his messages is to pose the question, why is everybody here lying about things that we really know? We can't do without hierarchies. Hierarchies should be based on merit. The idea of universal equity is a noxious idea. The, the thesis that gender is a, a spectrum or continuum is nonsense, not supported either by psychology or biology. Um, hard work is its own reward. There's an important value to telling the truth. We should be kind when we can, but Empathy should not be prized above every other human consideration, such as truthfulness, honor, diligence, loyalty, hard work, fastidiousness, and taste. I think that, uh, hey, I wish I were up there saying all those things. <clears throat> um, you just have. Well, no, I mean, honor, honor, avulana, uh, uh, with respect to Jordan Peterson, he took the risk, and it was a real risk. Um, and he, he rose to the challenge. I admire that. I don't agree with him about everything, that's for sure. Uh, for example, I think he's dead wrong about the patriarchy. Odd thing to me to say, but I think it has been a factor in affairs. Tragic mistake for we men ever to give it up, but we gave it up, and we have to live with the consequences. But look, those are points of nuance. I think basically he's provided a a very, very wonderful service. He showed that a man can really stand up on his own two legs and address issues of fundamental importance without waffling, truckling to a mob, speaking his mind and basing what he says, not because his classroom wishes him to say it, that's where the evidence, the theory, and the immemorial instincts of the human race have led. Good for him. Yeah, well, I. I I certainly in this country, the thing that I've noticed is that there is absolutely no doubt that he actually deeply cares, which is something his critics can't claim that many of them uh, do, uh, and, and, and that the people who are on the receiving end of that attention and that care and that engagement in their lives know that he's the real deal. And that authenticity cuts through in Australia in an extraordinary way. I agree. Um, the only reservation I have is a social one. And it's a question. How come there's only one? Well, you play an incredibly valuable role in helping us think. And because you are, as you said at the beginning, you recognise the need to be self-reflective. Uh, and because of your sincerity and modesty, uh, I think you do cut through. I thank you enormously for spending this time, and I hope it's valuable for our viewers and listeners.
I hope so too, and thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.